Remember when Notre Dame football star Matai Teo claimed he was duped by an imaginary internet girlfriend? Long before that, Joseph Yellow Kid Well was lying, conning, and swindling at any opportunity he could. Chicago, the Windy City, has given birth to some legendary con men. There's even was a con men convention, with the keynote speaker being Joseph Yellow Kid Well. He swindled all of his victims out of a grand total of $114 million by today's money. He loved to put himself out there and put on a show. He had a formal uh, professional picture of himself circulated in the papers. Uh, there was no shortage of rich people in Chicago pre-stock market crash, and most were young, which made them naive. The yellow kid fed on that. He fed on the suckers. He also left behind some thoughts on the human condition of why we are always looking for a deal or trying to get something for free. And it's those people that will always fall for a scam. Joseph used his words to make his fortune, even studied to be a preacher at one point. But I've got some classic con artist stories for you today, children. Yellow Kid lived in a time when the Wild West and modern society were colliding and both didn't know what to do with one another but we both know which one won. But at the turn of the 20th century, these two cultures were coming together that made for some interesting times. There was clash of ideas and social interactions, and some laws that we think are common today weren't even around. Well, they weren't needed until Joseph came around, coming up with some cons that no one had ever heard of before, and even improving on some old ones. But what am I talking about? Well, let's find out. This is My Little Cult. Today's show might teach us something, and not how to be a con artist, but maybe about human nature. Everybody's version of success is different. It's not the destination, but how you get there. And today's journey is crazy. We'll hear about fake horse races and how Joseph had many startups. He dabbled in chewing gum, coffee, and dogs. Joseph wanted success but he didn't want to get it in the traditional way. Let's find out how this silver-tongued and yellow-tailed con man separated many an average Joe from his coin. So sit back and relax. Keep an eye on your wallets as we dive into the world of Joseph Yellow Kid Weld. Joseph was born to grocery store owners Mr. and Mrs. Otto Well in 1875. They lived near Harrison and Clark Street in Chicago. After school, Joseph would help his parents in the store, but after he admitted, uh, he would sometimes sneak off to the racetrack. He said that horse racing had a strong appeal for him, especially the betting. But Joseph couldn't bet. It's not like he was too young. Not sure if that was even a rule back then. It's because he was broke. He didn't uh, get allowance from his mom. He worked in the store because that's what you did, like a good little boy. He soon quit school and began working as a collector, but he wasn't making diddly squat. So uh, soon after he started, he uh, almost kind of organically created his first side hustle. Where he worked, there were uh, other collectors, uh, there were cashiers, and also bookkeepers to keep track of all the transactions. He said of his employees, if there was a scrupulous one in the lot, I don't recall him. Each uh, of his co-workers including him, was entrusted with the handling and keeping track of money. Remember, this is the 1800s. Uh, this is physical cash. No spreadsheets or management software to keep track of every single cent. Uh, so the bookkeepers were supposed to record everything that the collectors brought in. But shortly after the 17-year-old Joseph started, he discovered how much skullduggery, as he called it, went on. Slowly, over time, he began to notice that the collectors were not turning in all they collected, the cashiers were holding back a little out of each of collection, and the bookkeepers weren't recording every dime that were coming to them. However they were pulling it off, they were doing it under the radar. I guess to be a successful debt collector, you might have to be a little unscrupulous. He jumps on this opportunity. He, he goes around uh, to all his fellow employees that he knows are stealing, and he promises to be discreet about some of the shady practices that he's been noticing, and he would not have to go to the boss in return for a cut of their stakes. All obliged. Surprisingly, nobody cut his throat in the parking lot after work, and before you know it, he had another steady stream of income coming in 
that was more than his actual job. I bet that that made him feel pretty good about himself. A little confidence boost, seeing an opportunity and going for it, and it working out. On that positive note, let's take a look at our word of the day, skullduggery. According to Merriam-Webster, skullduggery is an underhanded or unscrupulous behavior. It was first documented in the mid-19th century, spelled as skullduggery uh, with a C instead of a K. Etymologists aren't sure exactly how the word landed in the English language, but they don't believe that it has anything to do with actual skulls. Uh, it's possibly derived from the now very rare skullduggery, a term once used to refer to a gross or lewd contact, conduct, but um, unfortunately the origins of that word are also unknown. Skullduggery. The more you know. Shortly after Joseph gets his protection racket going on, uh, he meets a girl. She was so pretty that when he brought her home to meet his parents, his mom pulled him aside and told him that that kind of girl belonged in the arms of a rich man. A pretty girl like that is never going to marry a bum like you. She should uh, be on the. She should not be a poor man's wife. And to that, Joseph said. I'm not going to be a poor man. I'm going to give her everything she wants. He watched his mom and dad for years get up every day before the sun came up came up and open that store and um, be there all day until the sun went down. And that was not going to be the life for Joseph. He had gotten a taste of how much cash you could make from skullduggery rather than from honest toil. And if you recognize that quote, then that's a good ear. It's from the Old Testament. It's Colossians 3.23. Joseph's time at the racetrack would lead him to his first con man mentor. Doc Merriweather also frequented the, track, the tracks. One day, the two were talking over a beer, and the doc asked Joseph how much money he made as a collector. Joseph told him, and the doc exclaimed that that wasn't enough, and right then and there, he offered him a job making three times what he was making now. In Joseph's autobiography, he describes Doc Merriweather as the most picturesque character in the Middle West. He was tall, broad-shouldered, and gaunt. He wore a Van Dyke beard and pince-nez glasses. He usually dressed in black, black trousers, and a black frock coat, flock, frock coat with extra long tails. Out on the far west side of Chicago at the time, Doc had a plant where he manufactured his Merriweather's Elixir. Its tagline was, Good for the ills of man or beast. Doc made a claim that the elixir was a guaranteed cure for tapeworms. The dark liquid was bottled in tall 32-ounce bottles. Merriweather swore that the miracle elixir was a secret blend of powerful medicines. During his medicine shows, he would start by parking his wagon in an area where a lot of people would generally gather, and he employed dancing girls that would automatically attract men. He dazzled the crowd with stats and info on the grueling research he had done to create the formula. He went on about the lack of real health and vigor of men in the audience. He would initially um, pick out and acknowledge the healthy men, but then would point out the unhealthy. He promised his miracle elixir ingredients would fix them right up. He was very convincing. The ingredients were mainly rainwater, alcohol, Epsom salts, and cascara, a uh, plant that had a laxative effect. Doc Merriweather set up a factory, which was on the same property as his Chicago home, and his wife um, bottled and mixed the elixir that he sold for a dollar a bottle. He left most of the bottling and manufacturing to his wife um, that Joseph called a buxom, pleasant-faced, industrious woman. Um, the doc felt that he had done his fair share of the work since he had uh, came up with the formula. Typical man mentality of the 1800s. But researchers say parasitic infections were, a common, were common in America during the 1800s. Much of this had to do with the growth in population across the U.S. and increasing urbanization. In urban areas, poor sanitation, unsanitary outhouse conditions, and more contact with domestic animals all would contribute to spreading parasites. The state of medical care during this time period was pretty terrible, explains Dartmouth Chair of Anthropology Jesse Cassana. A lot of people probably experienced symptoms of parasitic infections but wouldn't know what was causing them privies or outhouses would have been getting a lot of use at this time. If people had the means, they would order special medicines to treat an upset, stu upset stomach, which were really just tinkered alcohol that offered no medicinal benefits. 
to show what kind of outbreak outbreak they were dealing with, um, I'll read an ad I found from back in the day from a Dr. J.G. Shipley out of Montezuma, Iowa, who claimed to be a specialist of over 20 years' experience in tapeworm removal. And keep in mind, some of the words have different meanings than they do now. The ad says, uh, removed alive in two hours with head or no charge, no fee in advance, have cured over 2,000 people of tapeworms with this harmless, infallible specific, 50% of which were doctoring for various other diseases, thereby eking out a miserable existence as thousands are doing. Also cured two persons of lizards, send stamp for circulation. I have no idea what lizards are or is, but maybe if we took all the tapeworms glasses, then they might not be such parasites. I said, maybe if we took all the tapeworms glasses, then they might not be such parasites. Okay, so where does Joseph fit into Meriwether's master plan to sell his snake oil? He acted in various capacities, actually. Um, they had a plan depending on the area and the situation. In some instances, he was a uh, barker and helped to attract a crowd. Attract a crowd. At other times, he would act um, in the background as the shill, posing as a customer from another community. As soon as Doc had entertained the crowd a while, he would go into a spiel. He would say, Some of you men are healthy. I can tell that by looking at you. But there are many among you who are not. Why? I think I would be safe in saying that a tapeworm is eating your life away. If the, um, if the crowd was excited, he might uh, keep going on with his rant, but then he might start insulting. Like He might say something like, A shallow complexion, hollow cheeks, lean faces, wrinkled brows. These are all existence of a tapeworm. Um, if, if he needed to keep up his rant, he would, but if no one was biting, then that's when Joseph's uh, cue was to jump in. He would announce that he wanted to buy two bottles, but Doc would pleasantly let him know that only one was needed. But this is when Joseph, a.k.a. fake customer, would turn the tables by telling the Doc and the crowd, he made sure everyone was listening, that if it wasn't for the Doc and his powerful cure-all, he wouldn't be standing there today. He would claim that he had previously purchased a bottle because he had been terribly sick for so long. He had gone to many doctors and, and tried all the medicines, but nothing seemed to work. His crops were suffering, and he was close to foreclosure on his farm until he found a bottle of Meriwether's Elixir. He claims he is there today to buy two bottles, one for each of his boys that have now fallen ill, and he knows that this fabulous elixir will bring them back to full health. At this point, this is when every man in the crowd is falling over themselves to get their hands on the bottle of this miracle cure-all. Joseph wouldn't stay with Meriwether long. After adventures in snake oil land, he met a traveling salesman uh, who sold fake subscriptions for a home and garden magazine to farmers' wives and then peddled knickknacks to the farmers. Joseph took this idea and kind of ran with it. In one instance, he found a nice-looking farmhouse and knocked on the door. The farmer answered and he began to tell the burly farmer about his deal on the home and garden magazines, which Joseph knew that the old man had no interest in. He wanted uh, the wife. Before Joseph could finish the spill, the farmer grew bored and called to his wife to come to the door. When the wife came in, he pulled out a coffee, copy of the magazine, which the wife was sure to have heard of. It was a popular magazine. He told her that a year subscription was only 25 cents. The wife would usually go for the deal, and that's when Joseph would tell her about a, another special deal that they were offering. Also on him, uh, they had, he had a shiny set of silverware. He would present the silverware to the wife and let them both know that for a with a six-year subscription for $1.50, they were giving away the silverware for free. He called this his clincher. The woman's eyes lit up as the shiny spoon that she held in her hand, undoubtedly looking at her reflection in it. She said, they certainly are, they certainly are beautiful, but then a look of suspicion ran across her face. If these are real silver, then they're worth more than you're asking for the magazine. How? This is a question that uh, was asked by most of his victims or customers. As usual, as usual, he had a plan. He would tell her that that was very true, but the publishers want to put the magazine in every home. The silverware was for telling your friends and family about the magazine. Of course, they'll lose money on the transaction, he explained, but it will be made up by your goodwill. 
That's right, Ma, the farmer said. Them papers make money on advertising. With the husband convinced, all it took was a small nudge from the wife and the farmer handed over the dollar fifty, And the sale was complete. He took down the woman's address and wrote out a fake receipt and handed over the half dozen spoons. But Joseph wasn't done bleeding this poor couple dry just yet. Before turning away, he pulled from his pocket, his huge, deep pockets, a pair of very nice pince-nez reading glasses. And by the way, a quick uh, detour, pince-nez glasses were a popular style of glasses back in. The word in French, uh, pins means to pinch, and nez is nose. I'm pretty sure I'm saying all that right. Um, they were the glasses that um, they were supported on the nose instead of around the ears. Um, kind of like the glasses Morpheus had on the first time Neo met him. Um, so he's standing there with Morpheus's glasses. He tells the couple that, coincidentally, um, he was coming down the road with his partner, and they found him, so he wanted to ask him if they knew, knew anybody in the community that wore that type of glasses. They both examined them and shook their heads. Too bad, Joseph said regretfully. If I could find the owner, I would return them. They look like expensive glasses. I imagine the person who lost them would pay 3 or $4 reward for them. And as he was talking, the farmer tried them on. He held up the sample copy of the magazine that Joseph had, Joseph had given him, and the print stood out a little clearer than they did before. He looked at the rims, which appeared to be solid gold. They looked expensive. Tell you what I'll do, he proposed. I'll give you the three dollars and keep the glasses. I'll look around for the owner as long as you can't, won't be able to make a complete search. That's right, Joseph agreed. I can't afford to go from home to home to inquire on who lost a pair of glasses. So Joseph took the three dollars and the farmer took the glasses. Of course, this old farmer had no intention of looking for the owner, any more than Joseph did. And as a matter of fact, Joseph could tell at this point the farmer was just as anxious to have Joseph be on his way as Joseph was ready to leave. Eventually, the farmer would discover that the frames were cheap and the lenses were no more than magnifying glasses. And if he took the trouble to ask, he would find that he could get them duplicated in the city for just 25 cents. And on the other hand, his wife would discover that the beautiful silver spoons that he had given her were just cheap metal. Joseph bought them uh, before leaving Chicago for a cent each. The yellow kid's net profit on the deal was about three fifty. Joseph said, I figured the farmer could well afford a lesson in honesty. He had paid for the glasses because he thought he was getting something expensive at the fraction of their true value. His wife had thought she was getting something for nothing. This desire to get something for nothing has been very has been very costly to many people who have dealt with me and with other con men. Joseph believed that Humans were 99% animal and 1% human. The 99% that is animal remains quiet and doesn't really cause any trouble, but that 1%, that's the product of all our downfalls. He thought that once society figured out that they can never get something for nothing, then and only then will crime deflate and we can live in harmony. The magazine watch scam is one uh, that him and his partner ran that entire summer getting anywhere from 10 sales a day, bringing in 35 bucks. That was more than he was making in a week back in Chicago. Did someone say crime doesn't pay? Joseph's wife, Jessie, and her family were members of the Sacramento Congregational Church in Chicago. Jessie had no idea of Joseph, Joseph's real means of income. She thought he was a traveling salesman for a reputable firm. She never asked uh, about his work. It might sound weird, but back then women didn't get involved in the affairs of men. Um, either way, he attended church with his wife and family every Sunday. The minister of the church had a forceful delivery, and like many men of the pulpit, pulpit, used a clever choice of words to sway the congregation. This got Joseph thinking. From his autobiography, Joseph said to himself, Joe, you are not capable of hard physical work. You're too frail. Whatever you accomplish in life must be done through words. You have that ability. You can make words beautiful and scenic. What marble is to sculpture, what canvas is to painting, words can be to you. You can use them to influence others. You can make them earn your living for you. The minister made such an impression on Joseph that he wondered if the minister would help him get into a seminary to um, help him learn to become a pulpiteer or a priest. 
Um, but of course, Joseph was not interested in helping his fellow man. Uh, he wanted to sharpen his public speaking skills to further his own needs. The, pre- the priest, after a short conversation about where Joseph should start his journey, must have seen right through him because he handed Joseph a long list of books to read and told him to study religion and find it in his own way. If he was still interested, then come back and talk with the minister. The first book up, of course, was the Bible. He read that and other books pertaining to religion. He studied the lives of Moses, Buddha, and Muhammad. And he even read the Catholic Encyclopedia, which I had no idea was even a thing. Um, The first Catholic Encyclopedia was published in 1905 by the Robert Appleton Company um, to give its readers full and authoritative information on the entire cycle of Catholic interests, actions, and doctrine. Even with the drive that Joseph had, and the studying and contemplating, um, he, in the end, lost the desire to become a pulpiteer. He found inconsistencies that he could not reconcile to the point he became an iconoclast, which I don't think is a thing anymore, hopefully. In his conclusion, he found that man has all the bestiality of animal, but is cloaked with a thin veneer of civilization. He is inherently dishonest and selfish. The honest man is a rare specimen specimen indeed. Although he was thoroughly convinced of the power of words, he believed it to be um, acceptable and genuine if he were to use his words to make his fortune. In those days, the police were not like our police of today. Each force had a small gathering of peacekeepers. There weren't any detectives or any crime forces like for drugs or cyber attacks or even fraud. The municipal court, or like a general sessions court, uh, was small small and still in its infancy. Most of the courts were operated by justices of the peace. Most con men or criminals referred to the courts at the time as justice shops. Um, Each justice had its own constables, who were the detectives of that period. Uh, Joseph romanticizes that there was practically no restriction on either gambling or vice. A man can earn money by his wits without any interference from the constables or the police. Both, uh, both civil and criminal cases were tried in the justice shops. Joseph was acquainted with one magistrate quite well, Judge Aldo. The judge would send him out to select jurors. Juries, were comp- juries at the time were composed of six men. When Joseph was tasked to get a jury together, the first piece of info he needed to know was which way the case was going to be decided. His first stop would usually be the saloons. He'd tap a man on the shoulder and say, How'd you like to make a couple of easy dollars? If he was interested, Joseph would tell him that he would have to vote right to earn his money. When he uh, got about half a dozen men together or so, he would lead them into Judge Aldo's court and saw them sworn in as jurors. The trial, um, of course, was a farce. The verdict had already been decided long before the jury had even been assembled. Talk about a broken jury selection. The law seemed to protect a, lot of, protect a lot of criminals back in the day. For example, if you felt you were cheated out of a deal or you were cheated out of a deal, there was no laws protecting you or your investment. Joseph, with his sharpened tongue, uh, traded one of his what seems to be unlimited supply of fake watches uh, for an older horse and a buggy. He would, um, he would be able to get around it much easier, much easier now. That's probably the equivalent equivalent. That's probably the equivalent of trading uh, like a cheap watch for maybe a used dirt bike. Joseph ended up selling the old horse for a profit, but kept the cart. He had um, heard of a young woman who had two horses that were pretty big and strong and too out of control for her to handle. He was able to negotiate a deal for both horses, named Nicotine and Mutineer, for a pretty good price. At the time, sulky racing was pretty popular. He used to race one or the other of the horses hitched to a sulky or his two-wheeled cart, kind of like a chariot, at Billy Gilliam's racehorse at 35th and Grand Boulevard. When he could afford it, he bought a buggy and used nicotine and mutineer at the same time as carriage horses. When he wasn't uh, doing burnouts with his digger, he enjoyed driving up Mission Ave- Avenue, Michigan Avenue with his two bloodied horses prancing and chopping at the bit, and he often attracted attention. One day, a well-dressed elder- elderly man approached him. Young man, he said, is that rig for sale? Joseph had uh, never thought about selling his horse, his horses and, char- and chariot, but replied, "I'll sell it for the right, pli- right price. How much do you want?" "A thousand dollars," Joseph declared after some thought. "I'll give you five hundred. Joseph said, "No, 
A thousand is my price. Well, the old man grumbled, if you change your mind, come see me at my office. I'm Mr. Loomis, you know. Joseph knew who Mr. Loomis was. He was a head of a chain of large wholesale grocery stores, which at the time was one of the leaders in the Midwest. Mr. Loomis's proposal gave Joseph an idea for a new confidence game. I like that better than con. That's how they spoke back in the day, none of these abbreviations. I have a new confidence game that I'm putting into play. Two days later, Joseph met Mr. Loomis at his office. Have you decided to accept my proposition, he asked eagerly. No, I haven't, Mr. Loomis, but I have come to make you a counterproposal. I want you to lend me $5,000. What? That's a lot of money. Um, do you have any collateral? Joseph told him that he would put up his horse and cart, which both of them knew that was not close in matching the collateral needed for a loan of that amount. Mr. Loomis was almost had almost threatened to throw him out, but wanted those horses. And Joseph had a way of licking a man up and down with his silver tongue, so... If they weren't interested in the beginning, Joseph would make a friend and pull them closer into saying yes. Once Joseph realized he was safe to continue his spiel, he leaned in and whispered, Are we alone? Looking around the room, this must be kept confidential. Mr. Loomis nodded his head and with a curious look in his eye, and he said, uh, I'm going to tell you how to make a lot of money. I'm going to, he said, I happen to know the race is fixed. The man who weighs in the horses is a friend of mine. The winning, the winning horse will carry no weight. I also know the judge. In case my horse fails to win, he will declare it a no contest. In other words, Mr. Loomis, you can't lose. Lend me $5,000. When the race is over, I'll not only pay you back out of my winnings, but I'll make you a presenter of my rig. Just to show my good faith, though, I'll pledge my two fine horses up, two fine horses and buggy up for collateral. If by some mischance of uh, our horse fails to win, you'll have my rig. Mr. Loomis only needed a few minutes to think it over before writing a check for $5,000. Then Joseph told him the name of the horse, Mobina. Actually, Mobina was a selling platter, um, and it hadn't won a race in months. There was a little chance that Mo Mobina would win. He was actually listed uh, 10 to 1. But the odds appealed to Mr. Loomis, and this is when Joseph would put phase 2 of his plan into effect. A day before the race, Joseph dramatically barged into Mr. Loomis's office to say that the judge was now afraid to participate in the con and that they needed a couple hundred dollars to throw his way for a little encouragement. And on top of that, the jockey had threatened to expose the whole thing, too. When it was all said and done, he had taken Mr. Loomis for an additional seven, additional $1,700. Then came the day of the race. For those of you that aren't paying attention, um, the race hadn't been fixed at all and nothing had been paid to any of the judges. The only fixing that had gone on was that Joseph gave the jockey a couple hundred bucks to pull the horse just to make sure it didn't win. Full of sorrow and shame, Joseph went to Mr. Loomis and gave him the rig. I can't understand it, he said. Something went wrong. It was absolutely, it, it absolutely cleaned me out. In the end, Mr. Loomis got Nicotine and Mutineer with the buggy. In Joseph's autobiography, he shares another moral to this story. If uh, he had been willing to make an honest deal for it in the first place, he could have bought it. But he wasn't willing to pay a fair price. And in the end, it cost him $6,700 in addition to whatever he lost on the race. Joseph tried the same deal with other variations with other wealthy men. Almost without exception, it seems as though that they were pretty eager to get in on some easy money. He no longer had his rig as bait, but he played on their natural greed. He would ask for a loan and then tell his story of a fixed race. The amounts, the amounts he got varied with the individuals, but he never found another sucker who was as gullible as Mr. Loomis. One day he approached a John R. Thompson, who founded the Thompson restaurant chain, um, Joseph asked him for a loan of 2500 and told him the fixed race story. Mr. John Thompson said, If you're desperately in need of $2,500 and you can prove that to me that you need it, I'll lend it, I'll lend it to you, but I'll have absolutely nothing to do with a fixed race. Joseph didn't take anything from Mr. Thomas. He probably could have gotten a loan from him, but um, he'd say this later about Mr. Thompson. I can truthfully say that Mr. Thompson was the only man I ever met who was 100% honest. Hey, honesty is the first chapter in the book of wisdom, wisdom, and I've heard it's the best policy.
1903 is when Joseph says he got his nickname Yellow Kid. Definitely not Yellow Tell, which i pretty sure I think I presented him early as Yellow Tell. Um, it is definitely Yellow Kid, not Yellow Tell, the Australian um, wine. It, it's not Billy the Kid or Yellow Boy or the Butterine Kid, who we will meet soon. Stay tuned for his antics. But it's still a pretty cool nickname. It was said that it came from him having worn yellow gloves, yellow vests, yellow spats, and a yellow beard. All that was untrue. He never wore anything close to that style and had no beard. Uh, there's not really an exciting story behind it either. There was a comic strip in New York, uh, the New York Journal, that he liked to read every day called Hogan's Alley and the Yellow Kid. His partner at the time just so happened to be named Frank Hogan. But I think to pull off a scam this elaborate, you deserve a nickname. For this, con, for this con, he put an ad in the paper. It read, Wanted. Man to invest $2,500. Opportunity to participate in very profitable venture. Mo must be reliable. He did receive several replies, but the one he liked the most was from uh, Marcus McAllister, owner of McAllister Theater in Chicago. He had done his research on um, McAllister. He knew he was a principal financer on an amusement park that was... Um, in the early planning stages, so he was an investor. He had some money. Joseph had rented the banquet hall of the old Briggs house and outfitted it fully with equipment which was also had been rented for that occasion. A telegraph instrument was made to look like it was connected with Western Union, which they provided the race results through wire. It actually received messages from another instrument which they had installed in a separate room. They hired hundreds of actors. Joseph had told them that Mr. Schubert Henderson, a producer, was casting for a new play and wanted some actors for a pool room scene. The cashier's cage, wall sheets, and telegraph operator all looked authentic too. Joseph had actors at the cashier's cage and other actors went to the windows to place bets. Among those who had also helped were a few minor con men. To begin the con, Joseph approached McAllister with the proposal. He confided in McAllister that his brother-in-law needs the money desperately because he was a, had a gambling problem. Oh, not off to a good start here. So, of course, McAllister wondered how a man with a gambling problem could help him make any money. Joseph explained by giving reliable information on the races. He claimed that his brother-in-law works for Western Union. He could tip him off on which horse wins the race. Foolproof plan. They both, meant, they both went to meet Billy, Joseph's fake brother-in-law, um, who doesn't work at Western Union, by the way. But they actually went to the Western Union building to meet Billy. Very elaborate so far. Joseph must have gotten a little showmanship from Doc Merriweather. In the busy hallway of the Western Union building, Billy, playing sheepish, stood and listened to the plan that was laid out by Joseph. McAllister listened intently, and Joseph told Billy, when the race results come in, hold on to them for a few minutes, allowing McAllister to place a bet on the winning horse. They would take the sixth race at Saratoga the next day. The rented room had a big uh, clock on the wall set back a few minutes because they needed time for the operator in the other room to find out the result of the race before he began sending the message. Their scheme required that they know the actual winner because it would be too easy for McAllister to find out the race, to find out the winner after the fact. It, it came time for the sixth race to start, but according to the clock, the race was already over. The telegraph began to click. The, the clerk called out, Colorado is delaying the start. That was the signal that they had to, that they had agreed upon. It meant that Colorado was the winner. The odds were four to one. It was agreed that McAllister would take, uh, put a $2,500 bet and lend the $2,500 to Billy, besides $2,500 to pay the loan and a cut for the New York operator who wanted 50%, and McAllister would keep whatever profit was made. They hurried to the window but it was completely blocked by several men in a violent argument. Joseph pushed through the crowd, cried out to the cashier that he had someone that needed to place a bet. But before he could uh, get a response, he was pushed to the ground by someone in the crowd. McAllister tried to push his way up to the cage while the clock ticked away the precious seconds. He pushed and pushed until, over the shuffling and arguing of the crowd, everyone heard, They're off! That meant all betting at the race was closed. Mr. McAllister and Joseph stepped back and listened at the account of the race as it was called out. Of course, Colorado won. If McAllister had been able to place a bet, he would have won $10,000. But this is where the twist is. 
Joseph had no intention of letting him place any bets. That's why the argument at the uh, stage in front of the cashier's, that's, the, that's why the argument had been staged in front of the cashier's window. After a scripted, heated argument between Joseph and the cashier about how his friend missed out on 10 grand, they left. He had previously arranged to meet Joseph's supposed brother-in-law back at the Western Union building for the payoff. As before, he went to the eighth floor where the operators worked, and Joseph pretended to signal. Of course, Mr. McAllister had no way of knowing that he was not acquainted with any of the operators. The room was huge. There were dozens of men busy at work. He couldn't distinguish anyone's features well enough to identify their guy. All just for show, even if McAllister had met him. Nor could he have known that the closest Billy Wall had ever been to the operator's room himself was the bathroom on the sixth floor. It seemed, though, natural when Billy came down the stairs wearing a green visor and dressed like all the other operators that he had seen. Even to the attendants of the building, he appeared to be a bona fide operator. Billy noticed them and sprinted over, almost jumping for joy. He grabbed Mr. McAllister's hand and shook it vigorously. Mr. McAllister, you don't know how grateful I am to you, he said happily. You have saved a day for me. Now I can pay those lung sharks off and go home to my family without any fear. Billy saw that both men did not share his enthusiasm. He asked what was wrong. They told Billy of how when they got the signal, they walked up to the cashier to place a bet, but the wave was blocked and time ran out. Somebody called the academy because Billy was able to turn from overjoyed to brokenhearted at the turn of a hat. This is awful, Billy quavered. What will I tell the New York operator? He's expecting $5,000 out of this deal. And my wife, I don't know about you, Bill, Joseph said, but I'm going to pack my grip and get out of town. I don't want to be around when my sister discovers that you're in the clutches of the loan sharks. I'll go with you, Billy muttered. They went back and forth like that for a minute. Just a minute, McAllister interrupted. I told you I'd lend you the 2500 and I will. It wasn't your fault that the scheme failed. That would be wonderful, Billy said gratefully. But his face clenched up quickly. Um, what am I going to do about that New York operator? He thinks I won $10,000 and he's expecting half. He'll expose me. I'll pay that too, McAllister offered. Can you come with me over to the bank? Billy was on duty, so Joseph went with McAllister to the bank where he withdrew $7,500, around, around grand today, and handed it over to Joseph. Promising to deliver it, promising to deliver it to his brother-in-law post haste, Joseph did return to Billy, but to split the take fifty-fifty, and I'm sure go pay some of those actors uh, that he hired. But still, probably walking away with three grand, all in a day's work, just not honest work. Joseph always told himself he was going to let other people make his fortune for him. Seems like he's doing pretty well for himself. And in classic yellow kid fashion, he wasn't finished with old McAllister just yet. Of course, McAllister hung around because he wanted to know when he would be able to win his 7500 back. Joseph had too many tricks up his sleeve. A few weeks later, after stringing, stringing McAllister along, Joseph took him to an electronic store in Chicago on South Clark. Joseph asked the man behind the counter to see the device for stopping messages. Joe Moffat showed them into a room filled with expensive-looking gadget. gadgets. He pointed uh, out a special transformer. It was a box that was about 3 feet square and eight, 18 inches tall. This is the one of the most intricate mechanisms ever constructed, he said. Just to lift it once, both McAllister and Joseph tried to lift the box, but all they could manage was to get one end off the floor. It was extremely heavy. Moffat launched into a detailed and highly technical account of the device inside the box that uh, included a telegraph and sending and receiving instrument. Attached to each end of the box was a long cable, and the end of which was a special attachment. How does it work, McAllister wanted to know. It allows you to control messages, Moffat explained. One cable sidetracks the message into the box, and it comes over to your instrument. The other cable allows you to send any message you want. Of course, you need a telegraph operator. Simple enough, as Moffat explained. Spoiler alert. Uh, there was no such device for stopping messages. Wires could be tapped, but even then, Western Union already had perfected a method for determining when their wires had been tapped. But McAllister didn't know this, nor did he know that the box was so heavy because it had been, been filled with porcelain tubes. He made a deal with Moffat to buy the device, including some cables and a set of pole climbers, for $12,000. 
Moffitt's was a pretty unique place for the time. Even though it might have looked like a shop uh, selling electronical, electrical equipment, there was hardly a workable device on the premises. Moffitt's entire business one was with con men. He rigged, he rigged up inexpensive but fancy-looking gadgets to be sold to rich suckers. Moffitt collected the money, kept a 10% commission for himself, and turned over the balance to the con man. Con artists are like actors. Their job is to make you believe something is real, even though you may not believe it yourself. Joseph had many partners throughout his illustrious career, especially when it comes to um, running cons on the tracks. He said uh, this about one guy pertaining to a job. Bob Collins was a taunt that worked with me on several occasions. He helped me with the case of Mr. Con, which was amusing, profitable, and in some ways pathetic. Hmm. Joseph describes Mr. Con as a tall, thick-set German, as industrious man as I ever met. He owned a deli and a grocery store on LaSalle Street. Old Man Con, as he was uh, known around the block, took a lot of pride in the fact that his shop had the best food in town. He carried only the best imported cheeses and frankfurters, and all the meats and fish were fresh every day. Joseph had found out that Mr. Con was interested in being separated from his money, a.k.a. he wanted to place some bets on the track. Joseph approached him um, one day and told him that he owned stock in the race courses. He invited Mr. Con to the track, and he was fascinated by the vendors at the track selling their food. Joseph asked if uh, Con would like his own booth at the track. Con thought it would be impossible for him to get in, but Joseph reminded him that, hey, I own stock in the track, buddy. I could get you in with the secretary of the association who runs the track, Sheridan Clark. He led Clark, he led, yet yeah, Con toward Clark's office. Clark um, really was in charge of the concessions, but there was one thing about the office that Con did not know. It was always open. Jockeys, trainers, and owners were constantly going in and out all the time. And Joseph just happened to know at that particular time, Clark would not be in his office. When the two walked in, a man was seated behind Clark's desk. It was Bob Collins. Joseph introduced Bob as Sheridan Clark. Glad to know you, Mr. Con. Any friend of Joe's is a friend of mine. He walked out from behind the desk. Let's go have a glass of beer and discuss this further. That was the signal to get the heck out of the office because they had no idea when the real Sheridan Clark would return. Joseph said that Con had not the slightest suspicion, only a warm glow in his heart heart as they strolled to the bar. Over a glass of beer, a deal was struck between the fake Sheraton and Con. He would bring in his booth um, with his meats and frankfurters on Monday. But this was a lure to get Con in on the, well, the Con. As if on cue, Bob, a.k.a. Clark, used the asked the yellow kid if he was ready to make that killing. That was the bait. Con was immediately interested. Collins told him that uh, some days they go in the hole on the track because maybe the weather's bad or um, that day nobody liked the lineup of the horses. So once a year, they, they to make up their losses, they run a fake race. And, some of the, and they use some of the track's own money to place bets on the fake race. He seemed interested, um, so the next day Joseph stopped into Con's shop to tell him that he was heading up to Milwaukee to place a $10,000 bet for the association and asked if he wanted to tag along to make some money as well. Con said that he would come and definitely bring $500. Joseph scoffed, telling him that $500 was just a drop in the bucket. But as usual, after a little bit of persuading, Joseph followed Con to the National Bank of the Republic and withdrew $5,000, and the next day they were both in Milwaukee. Joseph had arranged the classic pool room setup with the fake cashier cage and Western Union telegrapher to take Con's money. Joseph put up the 10000 that he was supposed to bet and next Con with his 5000 Once that was finished and, and as usual, phase two of the plan is initiated. Joseph claims that he needs to run downstairs to handle some business. He was expecting a call from Sheridan back in Chicago to give important information. He asked Con to take the call for him if it came in. The only reason for Joseph to actually leave the room was for Bob Collins to call the pool room. The call came in. Con took the call. Bob told Cold Con to tell Joseph to bet it all. When Joseph returned and got the message, Bob, a.k.a. Sheridan, left him. He printed, pretended to think for a minute. Then he said, I'm going to bet a marker for $10,000. 
Why don't you bet more? Khan had already given up all that he had brought with him, but Joseph explained if you were to bet a marker like he was going to, then he could tell them how much he wanted to bet, and then they'll give you a ticket, and that holds your bet till the next day, giving you time to go get the cash. After a second to think about it, Khan agreed to bet a marker of 2500 and arranged for the uh, money to be wired from Chicago the next day, again at the fake counter of the fake cashier's cage. Back in Chicago, the day of the fixed race, Joseph, as planned, stopped by Khan's to collect the 2500 He rushed over to the Western Union, and here comes another twist. He wires $25. He returned to Khan with the receipt, and Khan was none the wiser that Joseph had just added another zero to the amount, and they never saw each other again. And like the story of Mr. McAllister and how Joseph went back to him to, after he took his money to take some more, there is a sequel to this movie. And I think it's better than the original, actually. And uh, so Joseph arranged for Bob to go by Mr. Cons to politely let him know that the concessions deal was off and his services would not be needed after all. We're sorry you got punked, but to both Joseph and Bob's dismay, Whenever Bob arrived at Con's store to give the bad news, Con had already excitedly got up extra early that day, loaded a cart with his finest cheeses and frankfurters, and made his way to the racetrack. Oh no. Con had made it to the track just after dawn. He found his new area and began to set up. The superintendent of the ground saw this man unpacking all this equipment out of a cart, so he walked over to see what was going on. Old man Con told him about the deal that he had made with Sheridan Clark. The superintendent, the superintendent didn't question his story. Rather, he pitched in and helped Khan load up and set up a stand. The old feller had a special sign made up for the big grand opening. It said, and this is awesome, now under new management, better food will be served. It was put up with everything else, and he was ready to do some business. You're probably thinking to yourself, where's the guy that's supposed to be there, that should be there? Well, soon after, the regular concessions guy came in. This is, this is hilarious. He saw the sign and all the gourmet food that Khan had brought. Everything looked so legit, so legit that this man thought that he had been fired and his area had been taken from him. He was about to turn and leave when probably for the best that he got there sooner than later, the real Sheridan Clark rolled up. After some back and forth, Khan realized that he had been conned. He packed up his things and sadly returned home. Um, nothing else was heard from him, but his deli and grocery store continued to thrive. I guess he knows his place now. Later in his life, Joseph tried his hand in some honest enterprise. He would, um, he might find, uh, we might find a little irony in him using his words to get others to make his money for him here. But just because you're successful in one area doesn't mean that that success translates to something else, like how Michael Jordan tried to play baseball or even Michael Jackson trying to start a family. Joseph would meet a ton of people along his way, some other con men who he worked with or just businessmen that Joseph helped misappropriate their funds and appropriate those funds back into his pocket. Some of these uh, fellow travelers would help Joseph prosper, but some would be his undoing. And after he made um, a name for himself, he began to take on different personas and aliases. Under a fake name, James R. Warrington, he created the National Association of Gum Manufacturers. He had every gum company in Chicago except Wrigley join. Wrigley, the largest gum maker, is based out of Chicago. Founded in 1891, currently has an annual revenue of $5.4 billion. He wanted some of that bubble pop in action. Joseph's Gum Association was given exclusive rights to sell mint leaf gum out of his gum machines, and he was offered first dibs on all the gum manufacturing products. Even though he hired 2,500 men and signed them to contracts, which required them to pay $150 for the machine and then a $6 deposit, and they were to manage and maintain the machines themselves, it wasn't meant to be. At the time, he was under a lot of heat from the newly formed detective agencies, uh, hence the attempt to go straight, and the combination of the company he kept, which was also under surveillance, and Wrigley's buying the spearmint formula for $2 million, he had to let the National Association of Gun Manufacturers die. Seems as though the chewing gum industry turned out to be a little too sticky for him. 
Speaking of Sticky, the Butterine Kid was a small-time racketeer and made his living by buying cheap butter, usually oleo margarine, and adding color to it and peddling it in town squares to smaller shops and from house to house. This is something for you uh, old-timers out there. Some people colored their butter back in the day. Butterine was a term used in the industry to trick customers, hence his name. Um, he sold it uh, purely as like creamery butter at less of the market price too. Joseph enjoyed butter, but not that much. When he was hungry, he liked to eat at Metzger's restaurant on Monroe Street. It was a combination bar and cafe with a glass partition separating the two sections. Ah, the middle partition. It's always there to separate the smoking and non-smoking sections, acting as that barrier between those whose sole responsibility was to keep the manufacture of the Burger King aluminum ashtrays in business and those who enjoy clean air while eating but never getting it. On the walls of the restaurant hung numerous enlarged pictures of two coffee plantations which Metzger owned at uh, Yalapa and Veracruz in Mexico. He served coffee from these plantations and sold it in bulk in his restaurant at three pounds for a dollar. One day, as Joseph was enjoying a cup of that coffee in Metzger's restaurant, he was looking around at the pictures of the rolling hills and the plantations of Mexico and, as usual, a scheme began to brew in his brain. As soon as, as, soon as, as, soon as he was finished with his meal, ah, he got up and searched out the owner. He introduced himself, himself to Metzger as Richard E. Dorian and told them that he had a business proposition for him. Metzger had uh, seen him in there before, but um, didn't, know what he was, didn't know what he did for a living. Metzger was a heavyset man that wore Morpheus-style glasses and always sported a well-tailored suit. Metzger wanted to know why he needed to go into business with this Richard E. Dorian. Richard's idea was to offer the same coffee, not altering it out, and not altering it at all, but giving something away for free with the coffee. You might be wondering, what is this free item that comes with my purchase of coffee? Is it coffee filters? Is it a coupon to make um, to win a nice coffee maker? No, it's a piano. Let me explain. Joseph was already aware that the average person would go out of their way if they knew they were going to get uh, something for nothing. So most people would pay a few cents more for a pound of coffee if they knew they were going to get something extra. After some negotiation, after Joseph licked him over with that silver tongue, Metzger would hang, hang, uh, hand over the ownership of both plantations to Joseph. He also worked out a deal with the Beidle brothers out of Rochester, New York, to get the pianos at wholesale at $45. It, uh, I did a little math. I'm not very good at it, so I promise I used a calculator. $45 in today's money is almost $1,600, and the cheapest piano I found today is 2000 that's the cheap uh, Guitar Center brand. So it seems as though he got he found a decent deal on the pianos. After nailing that deal um, down, Joseph went back to Chicago to meet a coffee roaster named Martin. Joseph, Joseph was able to convince Martin to process the beans for him, and Martin was so excited to get in on the adventure, the get in on the venture, he offered up his name for credit. He was familiar with the land that was in Mexico that produced the beans. Martin promised to blend, roast, and package all the coffee in three-pound cans. But Joseph still needed a place to process the coffee beans. He found a millwright building at 14 North May Street that was for sale. He was able to locate the owner, Morgan, and offered to buy the building, but admitted he didn't have the cash to pay for it. He whipped out the names of Metzger and Martin, swirled them around with his silver tongue, and after Morgan had checked with those two, he was ready to sign a contract that allowed Joseph not to have to make a pay not to have to make a payment for the first six months. Martin even uh, gave him money to remodel the first floor, turning it into his office, and he let Martin remodel the rest since he was the coffee expert. He had a display room set up in his office and designed a trademark and letterhead for his company, doing everything legit and by the book. What can go wrong? The slogans were from the plantation to the consumer. No middleman's profit. For the premium offer, it was no breakfast is complete without coffee and no home is complete without a piano. Everything had been arranged. Martin gave Joseph $2,000 to go to Mexico to inspect and get the plantations to produce at top capacity. His wife, Jessie, who had consistently uh, pleaded with him to stay in some legitimate businesses, was also happy. And Joseph was happy, too.
He was doing something legit and working hard on it, from what I can see. He is letting everyone else pay for his startup, but that's just good business. Um, he thought that the future would hold some promise and that he was through with confidence games. One day in a loop saloon where he had stopped in for a beer, he ran into the buttering kid. He hit Joseph up, he hit Joseph up for a $10 loan. There were um, Things were looking good for Joseph. He was in a good mood, so he let him have it. One morning, a few days um, before the scheduled departure for Mexico, Morgan was in the office. He, he was also pleased the way things were going, and he wanted to get them all together and have a meeting later in the day. The day of the meeting, or the hour of the meeting came, and the three backers had made their way to the office first, Martin, Metzger, and Morgan, the three M's. As the men were waiting, in walks the buttering kid. What was he doing there? Later, he told Joseph he originally went there to just borrow 20 bucks. Where's the boss, he asked. He'll be back soon, Martin replied. Have a seat. The buttering kid sat down, but he was the restless type. He shuffled around in the seat for a minute, but then he pulled some dice from his pocket. Say, would any of you fellas like to roll them while, we waiting? while we're waiting? Metzger and Morgan were not interested, but Martin agreed to shoot, the kid, shoot with the kid to pass the time. The kid pulled out his dice, and they started to roll. Martin lost over and over. As he was shooting, it seemed to, seemed to be a little different. His dice were seemed to be a little different from the ones that the kid was using. So the next time the kid rolled, Martin reached out and grabbed the dice. That's when he noticed that they were misspotted. Martin stood up. I don't like to be cheated. Took his money back from the buttering kid and punched him right in the face. The kid got up off of the floor rubbing his face and said, You can't do that to me. Wait till Joe gets back. Uh, who? Who's Joe? Uh-oh. That's all it took. The three M's ganged up on the buttering kid and squeezed all the info out of him that they had on Joseph Yellow Kid Well. By the time that Joseph had gotten there, he didn't stand a chance. Even though Joseph was really trying to run a legitimate business, his reputation certainly preceded him so overwhelmingly that his silver tongue wouldn't save him this time. Joseph Wells lies under the ground. Don't jingle any money while walking around. That was a darkly funny epitaph that Jesse had suggested for our outlier's tombstone. Joseph's an outlier not because he was a bad guy criminal, but because he um, never had a desire to be dishonest. His motivation for all his actions was just to acquire money. And I think he wanted to experience a little adventure too. But he left... He left this world, I believe there was at least one of these scams, but before he left this world, there was one of these scam, his scams that actually did some good. And if you don't agree with me, then you're way too much of a yes man in goody two-shoes. With the partner Fred the Deacon Buckminster, you gotta get the guys with the nicknames, by the way, Joseph and Fred would grab stray dogs off the street, clean them up, and then sell them as expensive pedigree. See, they're giving homeless dog, homeless dogs good homes. He would visit a bar with uh, one of the well-groomed dogs and offer a generous tip for the bartender to watch his dog while he went to an important business meeting. Later, the deacon would show up, see the dog, and just coincidentally be in the market for that same exact breed and would offer $200 for the dog right on the spot. It not being the bartender's dog, he obviously couldn't sell it, of course, but he told the deacon to come back a little later. Joseph would eventually return to retrieve his dog, dismayed and depressed looking, explaining that his business deal went south and he is out a lot of money. The bartender, seeing an opportunity of his own, would offer $100 for the dog, intending, intending to sell it for double that to the deacon. The yellow kid would immediately perk up and, of course, sell the dog, but the deacon would never show. Yellowtail and the deacon, getting stray dogs off the street since the turn of the century. The Yellow Kid is buried in Mount Glenwood Memorial Gardens West in Illinois. He lived to the very ripe old age of 100. I would say that that's pretty good considering his profession. Some of his caliber and equal reputation exit this world a lot sooner than that, especially in that day. The stories I've told today of the scruffy buttering kid, fake horse races, fake spoons, fake watches, tapeworm remedies, piano giveaways, and enough productions to merit multiple daytime Emmy awards are just the tip of the iceberg of Yellow Kid's life. I had to stop eventually, or this thing would have kept going like the Energizer Bunny. 
I might have to do a part two for you children, but the gods say that this one has served its purpose. If you learned anything at all here or maybe enjoyed what you did here, send me an email to mylittlecult at outlook.com. It's mylittlecult at outlook.com. That's right. I like the outlook. Let me know how I'm doing. Any kind of feedback is welcome. And I mean any kind. Any kind. And with that, we are going to wrap up. Thank you to the Yellow Kid for providing many funny and entertaining stories and some lessons on how to protect yourself from a scammer. Joseph Yellowtail Well analyzed Yellow... I did it again. Joseph Yellow Kid Well. I'm so sorry. Joseph Yellow Kid analyzed his mark, picking out the right one, the one that would give him... I'm sorry, the one that would go in with him on a little shady business to make a quick, quick buck, always leaving the good, you know, honest guy alone, almost like a Robin Hood type. Almost. He grew his fortune from others' gullibleness and became infamous for it. Go check out the rest of my catalog, and thanks for listening to the end. This is the best part. Remember to keep an open mind and definitely stay curious. Thank you.